Um, Sunday morning comes around every seven days. Sometimes you, uh, I don't know about you, maybe it's true for you, but sometimes you just, you feel good. Sometimes you have, you, you don't feel good uh, for a variety of reasons. So if you're like me, you come into this space uh, kind of every Sunday in a little bit different way and not always up, uh, sometimes confused, sometimes uh, stressed, sometimes on a high. So every day is a little different. Uh, today's kind of a weird day. Uh, we're continuing this, this morning with our uh, study of Jesus' Sermon on the Mount, his so-called Sermon on the Mount, which subtitled this uh, series or this sermon, Living in God's Kingdom. I haven't talked a lot about that the last couple of weeks, uh, but we'll talk about it a little bit more uh, today and then uh, more and more over the next few weeks. We dealt on our first Sunday, uh, our first time in uh, Sermon on the Mount two Sundays ago with the question, who has the good life? Who is well off? And we wrestled with that question a little bit, uh, tried to answer it from the scriptures. Last Sunday, we continued in Jesus' Sermon on the Mount, and we asked and dealt with the question, uh, why are we here? Why am I here? What is life about? What is my purpose? Why do I exist? What is my mission? This morning's question, as we continue in the Sermon on the Mount, is uh, similar to the first week's, but, but different. It is, who is good? Who is truly good? Uh, and what makes a person good? Uh, Before we get into that, though, and look at that uh, question a little bit more, we're going to dive into the scriptures. Before we do that, let's pray uh, this morning as we pray during this time. I want to ask you to do a little exercise with me to sync up our bodies with our minds and our spirits. So uh, if you would, put out your hands like this, make a cup or like this, and just kind of as we pray, uh, sync up our bodies, our physical self with our minds and our hearts. Let's pray. God, we uh, offer ourselves to you uh, as we have in song. Uh, and prayer through John's leading, also uh, now through uh, attentiveness to your word. We ask that you would fill our cups, that you would fill us up, that you would pour into us. Help us to be available. Help us to be attentive. Uh, Give us eyes that are good to see, ears that are uh, good to hear, hearts that are receptive soil, ready uh, and eager to know the things that you would have us know and become the people you would have us become. I pray and ask that as my words, the words of a broken vessel, are true to your word, that they be taken to heart. If my words are stray in any way from your word, may they be immediately and forever forgotten. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. So reading now from the Gospel of Matthew, again, chapter 5, beginning at verse 17, four verses, just four verses, that one highly regarded commentator called perhaps the most difficult passage to be found anywhere in the Gospel of Matthew. Ah, okay. Listen closely. This is the Word of God through the Son of God, Jesus. He said, Do not think that I have come to abolish the law of the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. For truly, and that's the word, uh, the Greek word, amen, uh, which is transliterated from the Hebrew, and in every way, like hallelujah, it's transliterated, and it just means truly, or we often see it as truly, truly. Interestingly, though, uh, it shows up in the Old Testament always at the end of a prayer, or the end of a statement, or the end of a prophecy. Jesus taking and having a different sort of authority begins always curiously. His really important statements with truly, amen, amen. Okay. For truly, I tell you, until heaven and earth disappear, not the smallest letter, not the least stroke of a pen will by any means disappear from the law until everything is accomplished. Therefore, anyone who sets aside one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same accordingly will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. 
but whoever practices and teaches these commands will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. For I tell you, and Jesus is going to do this a lot going forward in the Sermon on the Mount, I tell you, or often truly I tell you, that unless your righteousness surpasses that of the Pharisees and the teachers of the law, you will certainly not enter the kingdom of heaven. For I tell you that unless your righteousness surpasses that of the Pharisees and the teachers of the law, you will certainly not enter the kingdom of the heavens. Which you remember is the focus and thrust of Jesus' ministry, the availability, the accessibility that then and there, the here and now, and particularly in and through Jesus, of the kingdom of God, or the reign of God, or the kingdom of the heavens. Jesus, who has come to us, who himself was the king. He talked more about the kingdom of God, or in Matthew, the kingdom of heaven, or the kingdom of heavens, than he did anything else. And he was intensely interested in people being aware of it, understanding it, seeking it, entering it, appropriating it, living in it, being immersed in it in their lives, right then, not after they died. You remember that Matthew began his gospel in the very, with the very Jewish genealogy of Jesus, and then the birth of Jesus, then John the Baptist uh, prepares the way, fast forward 30 years for Jesus. Jesus is baptized by John the Baptist. We've talked about this the last couple of weeks. The Holy Spirit sends or leads Jesus into the wilderness, sort of reflecting or remembering the 40 years of the people of Israel led by Moses in the wilderness. There, Jesus is tempted by the devil, and Jesus resists in every way, prepared in a new way for ministry. He launches out by preaching and teaching and saying, the kingdom of God is here, therefore repent, or repent, change your mind, reconsider, think differently, change your mind in good ways, because the kingdom of the heavens is around you and available and accessible. And then as if to say, to show you that I have the authority to say all of these things, that my words are true and have merit, Jesus heals a ton of people and casts out a bunch of demons from people. And then one day after all that, and with all of that as background and set up, Jesus tells his readers at the beginning of chapter 5, then Jesus goes up on a mountain, hence the Sermon on the Mount, and begins to teach his disciples And inevitably, there's this crowd of many, 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 maybe thousands of people who have fallen and have gathered around and are also hearing, but Jesus' focus to a large degree is at first his disciples. And he says these things that we've heard the last couple of weeks or two weeks ago. Jesus began with the blessings or his blessed statements that have come somewhat confusingly to be known as the Beatitudes, through which Jesus declared blessed by God a whole bunch of different kinds of people who in their world and ours wouldn't necessarily be in situations or the kind of people are going through things that we would call blessed And yet Jesus declares all of them in a variety of ways, not by their merit or their goodness or even their situation, to be blessed because of their proximity to him and to God's reign and God's kingdom that is coming. Those things went like this. Jesus' statements, blessed are the poor in spirit. In other words, those who are spiritually bankrupt, spiritual zeros. Blessed are those who mourn, who mourn. Blessed are the meek. Blessed who are those who are hungering and thirsting for righteousness whether they get what they're hungering and thirsting for or not. 
Blessed are also the merciful, the pure in heart, the peacemakers. Blessed are those who are persecuted because of righteousness. And it's the first time that we'll see that important word in this section. And then finally, focusing primarily on his own disciples, Jesus declares, blessed are you. When people insult you, persecute you, and falsely say all kinds of evil against you, because of me, rejoice and be glad, because great is your reward in heaven or the heavens, for in the same way they persecuted the prophets who were before you. And then you remember that Jesus announced that this handful of very young men who had been with him maybe not too long, no big formal educations, no merits of their own, who had recently become Jesus' apprentices and students, he declares to them, almost audaciously, you guys are the salt of the earth. You're the light of the world. You're going to bring seasoning. You're going to bring flavor. You're going to bring spice. You're going to bring preservation. You're going to bring life. You're going to bring light to all of the earth. You're going to bring light. You're going to illuminate the things that are now hidden in darkness where people can't see truth and reality and grace. You are going to be these people. You are. Through their good deeds, God would bring himself glory. Yes, that's what Jesus said. Through their good deeds, God would bring himself glory. A city built on a hill cannot be hidden. Neither do people light a lamp and put it under a bowl. Instead, they put it on its stand and it gives light to everyone in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others that they may see your good deeds and glorify your Father in heaven. I didn't say this last week. I've got to slip it in here. There is no such thing as a private faith. You are the salt of the earth. You are the light of the world. A city on a hill cannot be hidden. Over the years, you've probably heard and maybe said, my faith is private. Jesus says, no. There is no such thing as a private faith. Personal, yes. Maybe things that you keep to yourselves a little bit. But Jesus says, you are salt, out of the salt shaker, light that just goes until it hits something and bounces off of. You are the salt of the earth. And then why would Jesus say next in Matthew's gospel these words? And all of this is sort of important, which is why I've gone through it again. But it all leads up to and flows together and makes sense eventually only when we understand all of where Matthew gets to in this series of passages. Then Jesus says, and why does he say it? Do not think I have come to abolish the law and the prophets, which for them was their scriptures, their Bible. Law, first five books, prophets, and then there are writings and poetry and psalms, but they were all sort of summed up as the law and the prophets, the Jewish scriptures. Jesus says, do not think I have come to abolish the law and the prophets unless someone thought or people were saying, whispering, murmuring, wondering, accusing Jesus of doing away with or even just not having a high regard for the law and the prophets. In other words, the Jewish scriptures. Why would Jesus say this unless people were suggesting, saying, accusing him of doing away with or holding the scriptures, the Torah, in anything but the highest regard. And why might that cross people's minds? The Jewish people, if you go to a synagogue today, unlike here when you arrived this morning, 
If you go to a Shabbat service at a synagogue, you'll go in, you'll sit down, someone will greet you. But the beginning of the service is the opening up of an ark that's usually in the shape of two tablets or two big doors that are opened up in what would be their chancel or their platform. And then the priest or one of the readers goes in, not the, the rabbi, and very reverently removes the scrolls from the Torah, the law, and opens them, and everyone's watching. And he will sometimes or she walk around the synagogue, letting people bow before the Torah, bow before the word of God. It was held in incredible, and still continues to be this day, an incredibly high esteem, far higher than we hold the little blue Bibles in the pew in front of you. Are you with me? Incredibly high regard for the word of God, for the scriptures, for the scroll, for the law and the prophets. And people seem to be saying, they must have been saying, Jesus isn't holding these in high regard. Because Jesus quickly became known as one who had his own sort of freedom and authority. Go back to the blessed statements as an example. Jesus' declarations of who was blessed and the obvious things that Jesus leaves out. He doesn't say, he didn't say, blessed are those who read the Torah every morning. He doesn't say, blessed are those who go to Shabbat every Sabbath. Blessed are those who give in this way, right? He's leaving out which were the most obvious ways that a Jewish person, a good Jewish person, a faithful Jewish person, and certainly a teacher of the law or a Pharisee, thought were the path to goodness, to righteousness, to being good. You know, because you know parts of other Jesus' uh, ministry, that he does things like healing people on the Sabbath. He isn't as insistent on the cleanliness laws as some of his contemporaries. He heals people on the Sabbath. He does things like he eats with tax collectors and sinners, prohibited not only by the law, but more so their tradition out of the law. And so Jesus was seen by some people as one who did not hold the Torah or the law in highest regard. It was thought by some that Jesus was short-circuiting their whole attention and high reverence from the law by his breaking Sabbath, hanging out with tax collectors and sinners. And when someone, whether an insider or an outsider, doesn't keep a society's or a people's or a culture's or especially a religion's rules or laws or commands, the rule keepers tend to get upset, don't they? How many of us are rule keepers? All right, just go ahead and raise your hand. Are you, any rule keepers here this morning? A few? We tend to gravitate toward church, actually. The rule-keeping kind of people gravitate not only toward church, but also toward religion. I'm a kind of a rule-keeping kind of person. Those who live with me know that. Those who work with me know that. Those who do things with me know that. I enjoy refereeing soccer games because I'm a rule-keeper by nature. And sometimes rule keepers thinking can go like this. If I'm going to do this stuff, then others better do this stuff too. Is it true? And have you found yourself on one side of that discussion or the other? Usually one side or the other. 
if I'm going to do these things, then everybody else better too. For this reason or that reason, for this reason or another reason. I saw this uh, line this week that kind of uh, made me think of this. If you suffered in life and want other people to suffer as you did because, quote, you turned out fine, you did not, in fact, turn out fine. Right? I mean, is there truth in that? If you suffered in life and want other people to suffer as you did because you turned out fine, you did not, in fact, turn out fine. Not to worry. Back to Jesus. I have not come to abolish the law of the prophets. I have not... I have not come to abolish the law and the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. And what might that mean, that Jesus came to fulfill the law and the prophets, which even if one is not sure exactly what Jesus meant, sounds like a pretty audacious statement for the son of a carpenter from Nazareth. To his credit, Jesus knows why he came. He announces it here in one way, as he does in a variety of other places, settings, and contexts throughout the Gospels. He came to seek and save the lost. Not those who are well, but those who need a doctor. He came to be a ransom and to give his life as a ransom for many. He has these statements periodically about why he came, and he's clear here and makes clear about one of the reasons that he came, not to abolish the law, but to fulfill it. And how does one fulfill it? That Greek word plerao can mean a variety of things, almost a basket of things. And so as teacher Jesus uh, teaching filled or completed the teaching of the Old Testament, what was left incomplete or to that point had been incomplete in or about the Torah, Jesus teaching about God and about the kingdom and about life in the kingdom fills that void, completes that picture. And we're about to see a whole lot of that over the next half chapter and three chapters where Jesus' teaching clearly fills compliments and fulfills the body of teaching that was the Torah for the people. Second, Jesus himself, and by his life, death, and resurrection, fulfilled the law and the prophets by fulfilling prophecy that was about Messiah from his birth to a virgin in in Bethlehem, and about the things he would do and the way that he would die and his resurrection about a reed that would not be broken, about one who would be silent before his shearers and would bear our sins. Jesus fulfilled all sorts of prophecy fulfilled in him, and that way fulfilled the law and the prophets, number two. And then number three, Jesus fulfilled the law and the prophets by obeying the law and the prophets, which no one had ever done before, during, or since, as he had been able to do. He fulfilled or he completed or he met the demands of the law and the prophets by perfectly obeying them in in a way that no one ever had, could, or will. Do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. For truly, I tell you, until heaven and earth disappear, not the smallest letter, not the least stroke of a pen will by any means disappear from the law until everything is accomplished. In verses 17 and 18, Jesus talks about his relationship with the law, with the scriptures, the prophets, and clearly Jesus holds them. He asserts and affirms in highest regard. In verses 19 and 20, Jesus now talks about people's, others' relationships with the scriptures. Therefore, he says, anyone who sets aside one of the least of these commandments and teaches others accordingly will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever practices and teaches these commands will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. There is a correlation 
And we're a little uncomfortable with this at times. But there is a little a correlation between one's obedience to the law and one's experience or place in the kingdom of the heavens or the kingdom of God. We fall into a, a trap uh, about this still today, as did the Jewish people or some Jewish people back then. We think you've been told, you've heard many, many, many times that Jesus came to save us, forgive us. It's all about grace. And because it's all about grace, it's not about law. It's not about works. I've been forgiven, healed, restored freely through no act of my own or merit of my own. I am saved by grace, and therefore the law doesn't apply to me. It no longer condemns me. It doesn't apply to me. But nothing, you have to hear this, could be any further from the truth. The law is not invalidated by Jesus, but fulfilled by Jesus. And as you have seen, and as we'll continue to see as we go forward, Jesus doesn't take the law off of the table, but rather clarifies its role in our lives and our relationship with the kingdom. This was actually happening in the first century as well, but in a different way. They thought, many thought, that if they just upheld the law, and many of the Jews, teachers of the law, Pharisees, were the best, we frown upon them because we learned in Sunday school that they're the bad guys, right? They were mean to Jesus. But the Pharisees are trying harder and more seriously than anyone in the first century to obey the law to do what the law says. They tweaked it here and there. They added to, they subtracted from, but their hearts were, I mean, they had the right, yeah, they were trying. It was really, really important to them. The problem was they thought that they could achieve goodness by outward obedience to the law. And Jesus says, nothing is further from the truth. And in the chapter and verses and passages that are to come, we will see Jesus over and over exposing not just their understanding of the law that they thought made them good, righteous, but also showing them a better way, a way of the heart. John Stott wrote, Christian righteousness far surpasses Pharisaic righteousness in kind rather than in degree. It's not about being better, 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 best, but it's about how we go about doing that. About how we go about doing that, which Jesus is about to teach. And so this passage, as complex as it is in different layers, is really prelude to an introduction to all of the heavy and beautiful stuff that's going to flip our world upside down, flip religion on its head, and show us the way to a true kind of righteousness. A righteousness that begins on the inside rather than the outside, but makes its way to the outside because it began on the inside. Jesus certainly had in mind uh, Jeremiah 31, where Jeremiah wrote under God's inspiration, this is the covenant I'll make with my people of Israel after that time, declares the Lord. I will put my law in their minds. I will write it on their hearts. And Jesus is taking his people from an outward religion to an inward relationship that is going to make all the difference in the world for those who buy into that curriculum. 
The prophet Ezekiel also wrote, I will put my spirit in you and move you to follow my decrees and be careful to keep my laws. Again, it's going to become in Jesus not outward acts, but an inward motivation. And motivation is everything. As we will see in the coming passages, Jesus leads his disciples to a place where they don't have to do the law, but they get to do the law. They don't have to do the law, obey the law, but all of a sudden they're in a place and he leads them into a position where they can do the law as they redefine this thing called goodness. Who is good? Who is truly good? And we have, could tend to think it's not that important because I'm saved by grace. But goodness absolutely is important in the Old Testament and the New Testament. We are made by a God who is wholly good. He declares us good and loves goodness. What does goodness look like? A little bit of a short sort of sidebar history lesson. People actually began in the Mediterranean world to think about goodness or righteousness. Uh, the Greek word is dikaia sune, about 500 years before Jesus. And it was Amos and it was Isaiah, but it was also the Greeks. It was uh, Plato and Aristotle who were exploring who is good, what makes a person good. And their word was often translated into uh, this diakosune, was often translated into the word justice. But justice, as we understand justice today, isn't really the right translation. It's not helpful. But really rightness, or what is right, or what is right and good, or right wiseness in Old English. Uh, eventually that came to be uh, translated as the word virtue with some of the Greek scholars, which we know a little bit more about what virtue means and how we go about virtue. People don't talk today, do they, about pursuing righteousness because it, it sounds really religious and we think of self-righteousness. But Jesus is interested in this and says, unless your righteousness surpasses that of the scribes and Pharisees, then your chances with the kingdom of heaven aren't so good. What could that mean? Except that he's introducing his disciples here and in the passages immediately to follow to a different kind of righteousness, a different source, a different way. He uses an illustration about a, again, about a dishwasher, which you know, who washes the outside of the cup, but then the inside is just still full of gunk and gross. Jesus says, oh, instead wash the inside of the cup and the outside of the cup will get clean as well because what's on the inside eventually comes out. And so he's encouraging his disciples to no longer operate from the outside in for show, for display, but instead to allow God to transform one's heart and one's mind and one's will from the inside out, and the outside also will become clean. We would be good and do well to learn this. The search for something deeper becomes an intellectual and a spiritual project into which Jesus invites us, and he does invite us. People today are reluctant to talk about being good or to seriously seek being good. 
at least outwardly. A.W. Tozer said, today everyone wants to look good, but no one wants to be good. But there's something about us inside that would actually enjoy being good and to having the good life, which is the kingdom of heaven bursting forth within us and not simply being outside of us. So I'm going to leave it there today, but encourage us to continue to explore this word righteousness in the coming weeks. Jesus offers a different kind of, let's call it the good life, or a person who is good, or internal goodness, and a way and a curriculum and a path to that. The word righteousness occurs more in the scriptures in any other book in the book of Psalms, and then Isaiah, and then the book of Romans, where Paul goes over it over and over. And interestingly, in all of those places, that word righteousness is applied to God and to people. It is valued, it is esteemed, it is sought after by people. And it describes who and how God is. May we, in God's covenant of grace and in his ways and with a Savior, Jesus, who fulfills the law and the prophets in every way, become closer and closer to his kingdom, entering it through Jesus' way of righteousness. I believe that is possible. I eagerly await digging into that more. Let's pray. God, we have negative uh, ideas about righteousness to some degree. Some positive, some negative. We can understand, though, a little better having good hearts as you have a good, holy heart. We ask that through uh, Jesus' fulfilling the law and the prophets, and through his holding high that bar, and through his gentle and gracious ways with us, that we would learn a new way of being his students, of being kingdom citizens, of walking in his path. Help us, we know that we can't do it by effort. We know that we can't earn it. Fill us with your spirit. Write your word on our hearts. These things we ask in the name of Jesus. Amen.